everyone, and welcome to the Popper's Cage Blogcast. This is episode 12, and I'm one of your hosts, Gabo. Uh, let's see who we have here with me. We've got Dime Collector. Hey, Dime. Hey, welcome, everybody. This is going to be a really cool episode, I yeah. think. Oh, yes. And we've got Love on another line. Hey, Love. Hey, everybody. I totally agree with Dime Collector. That's going to be a sweet show. And I am very excited to present to you all uh, the originator of the first Popper podcast. This is Chris Plummer. How are you doing, Chris? <laughs> hey, everyone. I feel like I have a lot to live up to at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you created the first Popper podcast. Uh, we, are, we are honored and in awe of your presence. It, it is truly my ple- pleasure to be here on the show. So. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. So um, let's... Uh, now, probably everyone listening has already heard uh, the Popper to the People podcast, so they kind of know a little bit about you. But uh, maybe we have some, you know, newer listeners, and I don't think you've talked about yourself uh, in recent episodes. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your past and how you got into magic and sure. how you got into podcasting. Absolutely. Oh, boy. Um well, I learned about Magic the Gathering actually in my early 20s uh, from a good friend of mine, uh, the nerdcore rapper Beefy. Okay. And um, he basically got us into it. Um, we would play shows with him, my band and, and him. And so it was one of those things where it's like, hey, what can we do to pass the time? So he, he got us into it that way. Um, my first deck was an intro pack from Future Sight, uh, right as Lorwyn was kind of being released. This was before I really knew how that schedule worked and everything. Cool. So. He got me into it, and I kind of fell in love with it, and I've been playing it ever since. Oh, nice. And uh, But how did you get into uh, MTGO and Popper? Uh, where I live uh, with my wife and kids, it's a, it's a really small town. There's about 60,000 people in it, and we've only got one store uh, that, that actually does local game stuff. And because of the family, I have a really hard time getting out Fridays and Saturdays to do any sort of events aside from the occasional pre-release that I can kind of plan well in advance. So MDGO really kind of solved that need for me. And then once once I really kind of dove into MD, MTGO and figured out the all the nuances that go on with that, I started looking at uh, different formats that I'd never heard of and never played. And the one that really stuck out to me was Popper. Um, and the two main reasons why that really stuck out is because it's fairly inexpensive as far as magic is concerned. Again, um, Paying for a family, it's nice to have that. And the other thing was um, there was no real information as far as podcasts go about Popper. And Chris Otwell over at the MTG Cast Network was asking people, it's like, if you if you wanted to do a show, if you were interested in podcasting, the network's always looking for more people. And so I put two and two together and figured, I want to learn about this format. I kind of want to scratch this itch I've had to do a podcast. I think I'll, I'll start a Popper podcast about someone learning the game. And that's kind of where it, it went from there. Cool. Oh, that's uh, that's really interesting. And your co- podcast uh, inspired us to start this one. Um, one of the things that really surprised me when I first started is a lot of people really, not only did they appreciate my show, but they they appreciated the fact that I didn't really know what I was doing and went for it. And um, they wanted to they wanted to know how I did that and get advice. And so, without without any prior knowledge, I kind of became almost an advocate in the magic community for podcasting. And that's really awesome to me. And 
I know you had expressed interest in doing it, and I just was like, whatever I can do to help. So I, I really enjoy that part of it. Yeah, thanks. And I, I think um, there's there's so much information uh, for about Popper, and you know, I mean, you can bring in like other budget formats and stuff like that. But there's just a lot of information. I think. Uh, only two podcasts is still very little, actually. If you look at, if you take into account that, for example, for standard, there's like you know 50 podcasts. Well, not 50, <laughs> but there's a lot of different podcasts for for the other uh, main formats. Yeah, and that's just that's just our network. That doesn't include you know the stuff that Star City Games does for their official things, Channel Fireball, all those other places. And 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 I agree completely. There's always. There's always more information that can be given to people, and there's nothing wrong with multiple podcasts of the same type of format. Yeah. Oh, and actually, you you started another podcast, didn't you? <laughs> uh, the Meet the Cast. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a paper pusher, day job kind of guy. So one of the main ways I get through my day is I put on some headphones and I listen to podcasts. And anyone who's listened to a podcast for any length of time, you, you start to feel like you know the person and feel like you're having a conversation with them, even though they're not directly talking to you. So I figured since I had a little bit of clout already having a show on the network, I would uh, just use that for, for kind of a selfish way and spend 30 minutes talking to other hosts on the network and, and get to know them. And that way other people can kind of understand that we're just people as well and that that we have interests outside of the game. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so there you have it. Mr. Chris Plummer himself. Yeah. And I, I did want to mention, too, that um, I, I've never really considered myself an expert player. Um, what I am is enthusiastic, and I enjoy being an advocate of the community, and, you know, I'm always willing to learn from my mistakes. So, Well, for this episode, you're going to be an expert. You're going to be a <laughs> mono-black control expert. All right, I'm up for the challenge. And that's what we're going to be talking about. That's going to be the main episode, uh, the main topic of this episode: mono black control. First, I want to give a shout out to George Leonard, who organizes standard pop attorneys on MTGO. He'd actually left a comment on MTG Cast, but uh, through some of the changes that they've been doing on that website, the the comments disappeared. So I lost his name, and I couldn't find the comment. But now they're back, so I, I I was able to look up look him up. Uh, so shout out to him. Uh, he was uh, he was very thankful about our episode on alternative formats and the start, standard proper uh, turning. So I hope that we sent a few more people along to to those events. So also, you know, we we've got basically two super fans who write a lot of comments on on the blog, and one of them is PB. But I recently discovered that his full name is Psychobabble. So another oh. another identity that is revealed. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's actually written a primer on Mono Green Stompy on MTG Salvation, and it's it's really cool. And he's he's still writing very useful comments on the blog. So thanks, Psychobabble. And the next thing I want to talk about is streamers. So. Last episode, we were talking about streamers, and I found a couple of other popper streamers. One of them uh, is a mutual friend, I believe, Chris, uh, Grant Champion. That's yes. Pitlord, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So he's been streaming Standard Popper now that it's uh, alive and well on MTGO and it has its own little filter. Uh, so check that out. That's on uh, you know www.twitch.tv dash Grant underscore Champion. And there's another Popper streamer that I found who's called well his name is Mike Games and his user is V underscore Double Cheese. And it's that it's spelt spelt kind of funny. It's the underscore D O U B L a y c h e z e so double cheese <laughs> and i was watching his stream and he's he's quite good so uh, i encourage other people to watch i'll just mention uh gabo that you you made a tweet about ship at holla and his uh, article about him playing a proper daily event with uh, blue red post yeah and he's also streaming oh i better uh, add him to the list then uh, it, his stream, his uh, Twitch name is the Ship It Holla. The Ship It Holla. Okay. So, um, if there's nothing else, uh, we can move on to a quick prices update. The invasion cards are uh, going up. Uh, Prohibit and Sulfur Vent are just over two ticks now, and Standard Bearer, Crimson Maculite, and I think a couple of others are above one ticks. So, if you invested in them, like I said. Uh, you should have a nice little profit. Like you could have bought them all at, you know, point, point two ticks, and now they're at two ticks. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good increase. Um, I'm actually expecting Mirage to be the next valuable out of print draft set. I'm, I I know it's coming. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the one that they put out for the um, for the next cube draft, which is going to be. Uh, in between the paper release of Return to Ravnica and the release on Magic Online. But we'll see what they do. They might just put out, you know, some some cheap thing like they did with the Onslaught. Uh, but if they do announce uh, it's Mirage, I would recommend everyone to sell all your cards immediately and then just wait two or three weeks and then rebuy them all for very cheap. I have to ask, what expensive cards are there in the Mirage block? The Mirage, uh, you've got Crypt Rats, you've got uh, Carvix Torch. Impulse. Impulse, yeah. Well, Impulse has actually gone down a bit, but it, 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 it did manage to creep up to like three ticks at one point. Um, wow. Yeah, you've got Fire Blast. Quiron Ranger used to be expensive, but then it went down. Uh, Rogue Elephant, Spinning Darkness. Uh, Spinning Darkness is actually part of the, the deck we're going to talk about. Those are all, you know, over 25, uh, 0.25 ticks. So, yeah, there are, a few, there are a few cards that you can make a profit on. There's one particular card that used to be bulk price, but it spiked up uh, just recently, and that's Chittering Rats. And that is also a part of Mono Black Control. Uh, I, I'm going to blame Travis Wu's Stinkweed Zombies build, because he put out an article... Uh, Suggesting this very interesting, uh, it's it's also a mono black build, but it's not really mono black control. Do you wanted to talk about it, Dime? Oh, I just wanted to mention it because it seems like whenever there's a, a popper article on Channel Fireball, there will be a lot of uh, inspired people that will run whatever deck list they're talking about, and 
we're starting to see that a little bit. This list is showing up in the dailies here and again. And, yeah, it does use Unearth and Dredge. It's sort of a disruptive, kind of aggressive mono-black deck. Yeah. And and that one uses Chittering Rats, and I think it's because of that that it spiked up to two ticks. Uh, it, it's come back down now. Uh, I think it's hovering around one ticks. Uh, but, yeah, that was, a, that was a crazy, crazy movement. And just in general, popper cards have been going up a lot. So Lotus Petal is around 12 ticks now, and that's the most expensive I've ever seen a real common. Like Invigorate used to cost that when it was only part of the jewel decks, uh, but not not a like a, a normal common from a normal set. And just a few months ago, it was 5 ticks. You, you'll remember that well, Lov. Yeah, I bought mine just then. Yeah, and I'm almost da- tempted to sell, but they're so important in many decks. So yeah, <laughs> Days is over uh, ten ticks as well. Uh, so that one is actually more expensive than what it was when that one was only part of the dual decks. So I think this is just in general because of uh, the popularity of Popper and you know the release of uh, M13 that made it. Uh, have a better EV. And those two cards in particular, I think they're used in Legacy, so th- th- they'll tend to have a higher price price tag. Yeah, one of the things <clears throat> that we mention a lot on our show is that if if you're kind of just getting into Popper or um, it's something that you've been thinking about, you know, tinkering with a little bit, and you have the extra tickets to spare in, in your account and you're looking to invest in some stuff, it's never it's never a bad idea because cards you know like like Lotus Petal and and things like that they are only going to go up as the format gets more and more popular and and cards like that aren't being reprinted. So if you've got like a little slush fund of tickets that you kind of use to just pick up some stuff that kind of suits your fancy, those are the types of cards you want to keep in mind yeah. because you're you're only going to kick yourself when when they go they hit that next ball. Yeah. There there is only one caveat to that and that is every time uh, the expansion that they belong to is released for drafting, they're going to go down. So if you know you're not going to use those cards on any deck that you're currently running, uh, probably in the next year or two, <laughs> that booster, that uh, expansion will be drafted and they will go down for a small period of time. So if you can wait... And- uh, we're also going to say that, and if you see a card that is expensive but gets spoiled, uh, that it will return, like Rancor in M13, you should sell and then rebuy unless you really need them for daily events. Yeah. Like yeah. Rancor has dropped like a stone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, that happens less often. I think Rancor is a, is a very rare thing to happen. Right. Like I, I don't think they'll ever reprint Lotus Petal. I doubt it as well. No, it's, it's not really... Well, I don't think it's broken. I don't think it would be broken in standard. It might be. I think reprinting something like Lotus Petal would need a very precise block since it needs to be able to do something. I mean, yeah. just reprinting a mono artifact that comes into play and then goes away for one mana, it needs a specific deck to work. Maybe they so. could try reprinting it at Rare in the next Master's Edition or something. Who knows? Mm. That's true. I don't think so. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that I, well, they wouldn't reprint it in Master's Edition because for there they're just taking like the really old sets. Yeah, but it'd be interesting if they actually reprinted it as part of uh, like one of the newer normal sets. 
even even at rare, it, it would still make it go down in price. I just want to say I'm really excited by the Return to Ravnica spoilers that we've been getting. Yeah, uh, particularly the gates. The gates. Um, do you think it's going to change? Do you think it's actually going to change the the state of Popper? I I wouldn't be surprised that they they were thinking of Popper when they when they made these right because the those those uh, that effect comes into play tapped gives you mana of two colors two possible colors is usually at uncommon. Mm-hmm. And there has been a, there have been a lot of complaints and there has been a lot of talk about Popper and, and you know people demanding things for Popper. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did it, you know, just for this format. To me that would be kind of surprising, but in a good way, because it, it shows that they're they're really paying attention to how popular this format's been getting. I don't like to read too much into coincidence, especially when it is just coincidence, but I think that there's something there's something going on between the fact that standard popper gets its own its own tab and filter on MTGO and they release cards like like the gates which are effectively um without the shot clause they're basically shock lands at common level for popper uh it just seems like there's whether it's um future planning as as far as them trying to do more stuff with it or just kind of acknowledgement of the fact that the format is as popular as it is i i just think it's it's really fascinating and cool yeah and i i think uh, so some people say that uh wizards doesn't have it any gain you know in in supporting a format like popper where you don't have to spend money on on cards but they forget that the, the money you spend on cards is usually for the secondary market. And even though, you know, a lot of people just buy boosters to get, to try and find expensive rares, they also spend money on entering tournaments mm-hmm. and they spend money on, on just playing on MTGO and in real life. And, and even just, just having some way to get people into playing magic, uh, without, you know, having to spend a lot of money, uh, is a way to get customers. It's like free-to-play, like the free-to-play, you know, uh, way of, of making MMOs that, that is going on nowadays. Uh, the Popper is Magic's free-to-play, basically. Yeah, one of, the, one of the main things that drew me to Popper in the first place was limited because of the whole uh, commons, uncommons, nuts and bolts interaction type stuff you see. Yeah. And there's a lot of that that still plays in in Popper. Making making stuff work at really limited choices, and also one thing that people who think like that don't really think about is that a popper player is almost always not only going to play popper, but he's also going to play other formats. And other formats that are popular include drafting, which earns Wizard a lot of money. Definitely. So. So if someone plays Popper, that's not only he will not only play Popper, he will usually draft, especially if he wins money in daily events. I know a lot of people, uh, for example, E Hustle, he motivates that he plays Popper to pay for his limited habits. <laughs> so they they earn secondary money, maybe not from the format itself, but drawing more players to the game. Yeah, and thereby exactly. earning money. Yeah. And, well, uh, going back to the, the spoilers from Ravnica, 
in general, I think that uh, it's it's going to be uh, a set that will have a lot of unique and interesting cards for Popper. I I, I don't doubt it. I mean, there's already a a four four for four mana in black. That all it needs is uh is one of those gate lands to to come online. Have you you guys seen that card? Yeah, yeah, ogre jailbreaker. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know if it'll if it'll work work in popper because it costs four, and we all know that uh, four is is that magic number where a card needs to be super powerful to do anything in popper. But uh, but a four four, yeah, that's that's pretty big. One thing people should start thinking about is that with uh, this return to Ravnica set, there's five guilds that are going to be supported. So those are the only gates we're going to have for pretty much the majority of the rest of this year. So those color combinations are what we're getting. So I, I'm pretty sure it's green, black, red, black, blue, white, green, white, and one other one, red, green, or red, blue, uh, which is going to be pretty big, yeah. I think, uh, overall. So the, the red, blue one is the red, blue one is going to see a lot of play. Oh yeah. Yeah, actually, red, blue, and green, white is the combination that has the most different number of strategies. And last episode, we were discussing just how how many ways you could combine auras with interesting creatures in green, white. Right? And and the the, the green, white gate is probably going to help with those strategies. And there's going to be a ton of cards for green, white tokens. I can guarantee that. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting, especially just based off what we've seen so far with green-black. There's so much graveyard interaction that I wouldn't be surprised if the Tortured Existence decks move more towards that green-black, uh, go back in that direction again. Um, or they could stay in red-black because they have the, the red-black gate available. So it's going to be cool to figure out what's going to happen. This is definitely a much more exciting set than M13 was. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, my, my only fear is that uh, the is it cards will strengthen is it post <laughs> then I'll be sad <laughs> is it post is such a huge part of the metagame right now it's a, the dominant top one shut up you traitor <laughs> I <don't... laughs> I'm, I'm noticing I'm noticing a similar feeling to uh, is it post on this podcast as there is on my podcast <laughs> <laughs> I actually have some statistics Oh. And this comes from a cur- courtesy from a uh, person who contacted me on MTGO. His MTGO handle is Sisila, and he oh, yeah. gathered statistics. And this is from one week, um, like at the beginning of August, I think it was. Uh, and I'm not going to go through all the stats because that's going to be a lot of numbers, but the top three decks is Isid Post, Stompy, and Delver, with Grixis, uh, with Infect following behind. But Isid Post is, by a lot, the most <laughs> placing deck in uh, the format. Stompy and Delver are equal, and then comes Infect. Those are pretty, pretty much the tier 1 decks right now. I'm, I am very much surprised that they've brought down uh, Storm. What, what happened to Storm? I don't know. I think it's a shortage of players, to be perfectly honest. But, I mean, Blue Red Storm has dropped. Blue Red Storm is among mono-black control and affinity now in placements. Wow. So it's dropped all the way down to tier 2 and beyond. It's far, far down. 
the most popular uh, Storm deck is Grixis Storm, and Familiar Storm is more popular than Blue Red Storm. Well, yeah, that, that one's uh, making a comeback thanks yeah. to uh, uh, Ghostly Flicker. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and uh, Paolo Cabral. Uh, Paolo Cabral BR is playing the deck to much success in the daily yeah. ends. Oh, cool. But yeah, the, the meta right now is is it posts and deck that beats is it posts? Pretty much. <laughs> wow. That's why Stompy is so huge. It's good against Blue Red Post, I've heard. Yeah. Let's go on to Mono Black Control, shall we? Let's start with the a basic overview of what Mono Black Control is. Can you tell us what the, the basic strategy, how it wins and how it stops others from winning? Sure. Is? Um, Mono Black Control, uh, in, in my opinion, is kind of a, a mid-range slash tempo type build uh, designed around hand denial, uh, discard, disruption, that type of thing, and uh, surviving long enough to corrupt an opponent for the win, basically. It, it does have uh, a number of bodies that aren't as fragile in some other decks, um, especially by popper standards. So you can always swing in for the win as kind of like an alternate win condition. Mm, cool. Now, I have seen some, some versions that don't actually use corrupt, and they just use uh, their, their little crit- critters uh, to take control. So yes. I, guess, I, guess, uh, I guess there are, there are quite a few viable builds uh, for mono-black control that still re- retain... Uh, the basic core strategy, right? Yeah, and you can even go super aggressive. Um, you see some builds, usually in the two mans, that you know they'll run the Carnophage Vampire Lacerator and just try and go all out, swing as much as possible, and then have a little bit of disruption and kill spells as backup. Oh, okay, but I, I guess there, there, you, you're, you're, there, there has to be some kind of a line between what Mono Black Control and I guess Suicide Black would exactly. be, right? And exactly. you know, like, like with other builds, people love to uh, mix and match and, and make uh, hybrid builds that just take the best from each. Yeah. Uh, but I think usually a more focused strategy works better, and that's what we see the most cropping up in the dailies. I agree. And um, I, I should mention, I, I tend to be a really aggressive player, um, but the whole win-at-any-cost mentality of Mono Black Control, you know, with cards like Sign and Blood that cost you a little bit of life, um, they just really speak to me. If you're a, if you're a fan of lo- of using your own life as a resource and um, just kind of disrupting another player's game plan, then Mono Black Control is a really good deck for that. Puts your opponent into difficult situations. Oh, cool. You know, when you said you're an aggressive player, I thought you were you you like to like trash talk your opponents and tell them <laughs> how lo- what losers they are and stuff like no. that. That's why I would say that um, Stompy is probably my second favorite deck. I, I think that my my favorite thing to do is is turn creatures sideways. And what's great about Mono Black Control, most of the builds, is that you get a little bit of that as well as a lot of just kind of messing with your opponent. Yeah. So cool. Okay, so let's move on to the composition of the deck. So, can you talk about what? What kind of creatures uh, you use to make the deck work? Ooh, there are a lot of them. Um, one of the main things I've noticed about Mono Black Control is that there's creatures that usually have enter the battlefield effects. Um, for instance, Liliana Spectre, Ravenous Rats, Chittering Rats. Yeah. Um, even things like Rotting Rats and, and things like that. It, it's all designed around 
guys that come into play and they do something to the board state. They either make your opponent discard a card, they make everyone discard a card, um, and just that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're building the deck, you're you're looking for stuff that comes in. It might be kind of a fragile body, as a lot of creatures in Popper are, but they usually do something that that can really warp what your opponent was planning on doing. Yeah. Cool. And um, what about um, the... So you, you mentioned the... Comes into play, uh, discard a card. What about um, removal creatures like, uh, <laughs> I guess, Crypt Rats and Kumbaj Witches? Yep. How do you pronounce that? How would you pronounce uh, that? I pronounce it Kumbaji. Kumbaji. Okay. I, I could be way off. I used to pronounce Shining wrong, too, so... You know, Kambaj Witches is a, is a card that I see come and go. Uh, maybe we should mention what it does. It's a 1-3 that you can tap to deal one damage to a player or creature, but then the the, the controller of that creature or, or, or that player can deal one damage to you or a creature you control, right? Right. So, uh, do you use that card at all? Um, I don't. I, I see it crop up in, in quite a few sideboards and sometimes in main decks, and it works to really good effect. It's just I couldn't find room for it in the build that I use, but that's that's not a slam against the card at all. It's a yeah. very good card. I guess it's a metagame call against something like fairies and mm-hmm. goblins and you know things with smaller creatures, even Stompy. Even Stompy. Yeah. The, the main one that I use, of course, is Crypt Rats, yeah. which is the guy that you can pay X and deal damage, deal damage uh, of X to each creature and each player. Okay. To just kind of blow up the board state and things like that. Yeah. And it's just, that's, that's really effective, especially if, <laughs> only if you've got more life than your opponent and you try and go for the kill that way. Uh, yes, that gives you an option, <laughs> but yeah, you want to make sure about that. And, uh, well, I, I don't know what happened. I guess on MTGO, if you are at equal life, uh, the player whose turn it is loses. I oh, I th- haven't had that condition happen yet. I think that's how it would work, because there are no ties on MTGO. You are incorrect. I am incorrect? Yes. Draws can happen with effects such as Crypt Rest on MTGO. Oh, okay. And then you just play a fourth game. Oh, cool. I- I've never had that happen. I've seen it happen several times. Oh, Okay. So then you just start another game? Yeah. And then the, the score will say like 1-1-1 one, one, one if, if it was match 3. Oh, okay. And awesome. does it, do, you, do you have to be at equal life? Or can, can, you both, like, can there be a difference in life, but just as long as you both lose at the same time, it's a tie? Uh, it's a tie because you, it deals all the damage at once. It doesn't deal 1, then 1, then 1, then 1. So you can have 1 life and your opponent can have 20. If your opponent crit rats for 20, or if you crit rats for 20, it's a draw. Oh, cool. Um, and I was going to mention uh, a trick that everyone should know or be aware of, and that is that you can uh, you can stack the the effect of the crypt rats. So you can say something like uh, pay pay one, just one mana, and then in response to that, pay another and use the ability. In response to that, pay another, and then instead of dealing, you know, like let's say you have five mana, instead of dealing five damage to everything you deal one damage five times. And this, uh, this gets past uh, things like regeneration. So if you're trying to kill like a, a river ball or something, 
the one time I've really seen that come into play and used it myself is when you're killing a Blight Mamba when you're up against the Infect deck. Yeah, for the regeneration, right? Yeah. Yeah. You might want to let them know how to do that. Oh, uh, you have to use uh, control when you're uh, activating the ability. If you do that, that will let you uh, react to your own effect. Yeah, you don't pass priority to the opponent, so exactly. you can kind of go crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that, yeah. that works with uh, other abilities like uh, our, our good friend from Affinity, Clark Clark Shaman. Shaman. Um, okay, so are there any other creatures you want to mention? Yeah, uh, some of the some of the other ones that um, one, another one of the main staples is usually Phyrexian Rager. Uh, yeah, who's a life draw card when he comes into play. He, I find that he's very unassuming. Like mm-hmm. at, at first, people think, "Well, he's just a two-two. Uh, he draws you a card, but he's just a two-two. What's what's up with that?" And you have to realize that in Popper, it is all about the, the two-twos. So putting him to play. Uh, without losing a card is is a really good thing. Yeah, and then another creature that comes and goes would be Augur of Skulls, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, future sight guy, black and a colorless for a 1-1, one, one, and you can play ba- pay black and a colorless to regenerate him, or you can sacrifice him on your upkeep and target player discards two cards. Yeah. So that's another one that, again, he's kind of unassuming, but if you can use him properly, you can really change the game state. Yeah, I, I found that he's quite useful against uh, uh, counter spells. I think that was where I found him to be useful because you you force them to deal with him on their turn, or they're going to lose some cards before your turn starts. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to move on to removal? Sure. <laughs> that there's no there are a that. lot of options for removal and they're all really good. So perhaps you could talk about, I guess, the types of removal and the ones that you prefer to use. Yeah, there's um, there's there's of course your your basic uh, kill type spells. For instance, Doomblade, uh, snuff out that type of thing. There's also edict effects. Uh, for instance, Diabolic Edict and Gets Verdict, which read target player. Sacrifices a creature, and in the event of guest verdict, the, per- the player that sacrificed also loses one life. Yeah. There's also a little bit of minus minus X minus X spells that co- that come around. So there's there's no shortage of different types of kill spells to use, and and what you have to choose from. What I prefer to use um, is kind of a mix. I like a little bit of edict effect, not too much, but but a few of them here and there. You, you want the the edict effects against things like uh, Guardian of the Guild Pact, right, or or hexproof creatures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and and it's also it's it's also really nice if you can get those one or two of them earlier in the game. So if they've only got one creature on the board that's causing problems, you can use it then too, because then yep. they don't really have a choice. <laughs> um. I, I want to ask you a, a, it's not a trick question, but it's a tricky question. Mm-hmm. Um, of the ones that, that just destroy target creature, um, do you have any preference? For example, would you use, I don't know, Victim of the Night versus Doomblade? This is, this is a tricky question. It is a very tricky question. 
I really have a preference for Snuff Out. Okay. Um, granted, it's a four casting cost if you're going to cast it for that, but like I said, I'm a fan of using my life as a resource. I like to pay the four life to cast it and then and then kill a creature. Um, and sure, it's non-black, but... Yeah, that, that's a big, um, I guess, turn-off for me yeah. for that card. If I find I'm going up against an, another mono-black control player or someone that uses black a lot, I tend to board in my Victim of Knights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because you don't run into a lot of werewolf, zombie, slash vampire creatures. Uh, what, what do you think of the one-mana uh, removal spells? So the, the very limited ones like uh, Dead Weight or... Uh, Disfigure. Disfigure, that's the one. Yeah. And even Vendetta. Yeah. Um, I think Vendetta is very dangerous, by the way. I, I, I don't actually dangerous. recommend using that one. <laughs> um, I like Dead Weight a lot. Um, yeah. Because of the fact that the counters stay around because it's an enchantment. Now, that, that can be dangerous sometimes if you run into uh, people who will bounce their own creatures or can destroy enchantments. That doesn't happen very frequently. But dead weight just seems like it's... Um, I favor it a little more than Disfigure because it does stick around. It, it does some power stuff, too, so you can, you can reduce the size of creatures. That tends to be, if I have to run one of those, my my money's usually on Deadweight. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think Deadweight's really good against cards like Atog, because even if they pump him up, he's going to die eventually after the, those pumps wear off. And same thing with Infect creatures, where a lot of the times they'll pump a guy to try and keep him alive from other removal spells, but that doesn't really work with Deadweight, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else you want to talk about from uh, regarding removal? Yeah, uh, Echoing Decay. Echoing Decay, that's a good one. Very important card. And Echoing Decay um, is is kind of like a, a little... Well, it's kind of like a sweeper with a clause. It, target creature and all other creatures with the same name as that creature get minus two, minus two until end of turn. Now, what's nice about this is if you're coming up against um, Stompy builds or, or sometimes... Goblin builds, even White Weenie to some extent, you can use that to just kind of do a lot of damage to a bunch of the same type of creature and and kind of make the board a little more manageable. Yeah. And and it's uh it's the tech against Storm, isn't it? Well, Goblin yes. Storm, yeah. Yes. Also okay. very important. Those are those are ones I tend to keep two of those in the sideboard myself. So. Yeah, as a white weenie player, I have to say Squadron Hawk's worst enemy is Echoing Decay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's it's funny how how it works because uh, white weenie has Squadron Hawks to counter Black's uh, discard, right? And mm-hmm. then Black has Echoing Decay to counter the Squadron Hawks. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you can run into um, that's one of those cards that you just you need to be realistic about when you play it because you can. Tell yourself, I'll wait one more turn and see if he gets another one of those guys out on the battlefield. But it, it's it's learning how to effectively use a, a card like that that can really elevate your play skill. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about Tendrils of Corruption and Corrupt itself? Tendrils of Corruption and and Corrupt. Uh, two, two cards that at least... 
as, as far as I'm concerned, they're really kind of pivotal cards in, in a control build. Um, where they deal X damage to a creature uh, in the event, in the case of tendrils, or a creature or player in the case of corrupts, and you gain X life, where X is the number of swamps you control. Um, the, these are really handy, especially if you if you're using snuff out for your life cost. If you're using sign and blood, even Phyrexian rager, because if you can if you can get to that point where you stabilize and can start hitting back for damage, and and corrupting the opponent, opposing player, you can really pull a lot of wins out from being behind. Yeah. Yeah, I find them to be very important, especially in the mirror match. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious for you guys, how much removal should someone play? I I know that Mono Black's really good at getting rid of creatures and stuff, and there's so many different options. How do you decide how much removal you actually need to have in the deck total? That's that's one of those things where um, you just you just kind of have to fudge it. There's a lot of there's a lot of three ofs and two ofs and and very few four of type spells that are in it. And for instance, um, I, I tend to just mix it up. I I look at my corrupt and my tendrils of corruption and I say, okay, not only are these removal spells. Uh, they're also spells that keep me in the game longer because I gain life from them. So I know that uh, edict effects, I don't want to just max out my edict effects because there could be a specific creature on my opponent's board that I want to get rid of. And I know that uh, for other spells, for instance, Doomblade or Snuff Out, I need some sort of removal that can target black if it comes down to that. So it's just it's learning how to fudge your numbers and, and playing with the deck a lot and just kind of figuring out what a comfortable spot is. If you were to look at the build that I'm running right now, um, it's it's about 33%, 33%, 33% between uh, spells, creatures, and lands. Uh, it, it's fudged a little bit um, in favor of, of lands, but realistically, I'm looking for my creatures to do the work of getting rid of stuff in people's hands. And then anything that they manage to get through, uh, creature-wise, I'm, I'm looking for a way to kill it. But ultimately, I want my creatures to do most of the heavy lifting with their effects when they come into play. And then have um, spells like uh, Edicts and, and Tendrils and, and Victim of Night, stuff like that, as backup for the things that slip through the cracks. And then... Um, Corrupt and, and sign and blood to be able to get me back above my opponent. Cool. There's also, uh, as far as creatures that see a little bit of play, I mean, there's like Okiba Gang Shinobi and Warren Pilfers, if you wanted to talk about those really quick, too. Uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about those. Okay. Uh, Okiba Gang Shinobi is kind of a, in my experience, there's some contention as to whether or not it should be in your build. Um, but what I really like about Okiba Gang Shinobi is that it's got that it's got a ninjutsu ability, and it's another creature where, in this case, if it does damage to a player, that player discards two cards. Mm -hmm. So you get that through once, and it's a huge problem. Yeah. And again, it gets back into enter the battle. Well, not enter the battlefield unless you ninjutsu it, but creatures with abilities that damage your opponent's hand. Yeah. And it, Warren Pilfer. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that as a 
combo player, I dread to pass the turn <laughs> when a mono black control has four mana available. Yeah. I don't, and especially when they attack, and then they go to declare blocker step, and they just sit there for a while, and I'm like, <laughs> no, no shinobi, no shinobi, no shinobi. Oh. And then they usually don't have it. When they have it, like, usually game over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the fact that it returns one of your other rats or a rager to your hand, and then you can use the, the come-into-play ability again, that's just, uh, I, I find it to be pretty awesome. But it's just so expensive, I, I don't think you want to have more than maybe two in your deck. Yeah, you, you want to see, you want to use it properly, and you don't want to see too many of them in your hand. Yeah. So the other one that, that kind of plays off that a little bit is Worn Pilferers, and this is this is a card that I saw in a couple of builds. I've been messing around a little bit. Um, and so when it comes into play, I can return a target creature card from my graveyard to my hand. If it's a Goblin card, Worn Pilferers gains haste until end of turn. Yeah. Now the haste, uh, if it's another Goblin cause, I haven't had it happen yet, but I'm always hopeful that I can get it going with another Worn Pilferers in my graveyard. Mm-hmm. It just just as kind of like a, an, an alternate uh, swing in condition. Yeah. But a a three three body is not unsubstantial un- and pauper, and um, and to be able to have a grave digger effect on top of that, it, it's just kind of something that I've been working around with a little bit. Okay. Uh, my only problem with that with that card is that it costs five mana, right? Yeah. So yeah, that is that's a big disadvantage. You're you're starting to creep into the range of shouldn't I just be corrupting here instead. Yeah. And I mean corrupt costs six mana, but but it has such a powerful effect that it's it's always worth it. Yeah. yeah. There's also some lists that um run cards like Unearth and Undying Evil. Yeah. Well but I oh go ahead. Oh I was gonna well I, I have those as part of basically the utility cards. Sure. So sure. let's let's go into that. So, Unearth and Undying Evil. Yep. Unearth was in the very first version I ever built. And um, Unearth, where you where that comes into play is that you, you play it and you can put a creature from your graveyard onto the battlefield that is converted mana cost three or less. Yep. That's really helpful to um, play, play a, for instance, Ravenous Rats, find a way to make it die quickly, and then play on Earth, bring it back into play, and use the enter the battlefield effect again. You can really get extreme value for your enter the battlefield effects with a card like Unearth. The other advantage is that you can cycle it away if that's not the way the game's playing out. Yeah. And the the fact that it only costs one black mana, I think, is very important for that card, because it allows you to have, like, a fourth turn where you play... Uh, say a chittering rats, which uh, well, we, we we mentioned in in passing, but I think chittering rats is the most important rat of them all because it it puts the card on top of the library instead of in the graveyard, right? Yeah. But yeah, you can have a, a fourth turn where you play one of those and then you unearth another one that's in your graveyard and you're 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 making your opponent lose two cards, putting two creatures into play. That's just uh, that can be devastating. Absolutely. And to a, to a lesser extent, Undying Evil as well, where you target creature games Undying until end of turn. Um, that, that can come in handy, uh, for instance, if they're 
killing off your bigger creatures. Where I've used it for for really fun effect is on a Phyrexian Rager. And sure, it's two life for two cards, but you're basically just getting effectively kind of like a sign in blood or and a two two well three three body at that point. Yeah. After it, which is <laughs> which is equally demoralizing to your opponent. Yeah, definitely. I'm really curious between Unearth and Undying Evil, what would be some of the benefits of picking one over the other? Because I'm kind of interested in playing this deck, and I, I was curious if you know one fits better in a certain build or has certain advantages. So, did you guys have any input on that? Yeah, if you're if you're running the rats build, which is you know the chittering rats, the crypt rats, the um, ravenous rats, that type of thing, I would I would probably recommend unearth just because the the enter the battlefield effects and um, and that type of thing. With with that build, you're usually going for the reduce your opponent's hand to the point where they can't do anything until you can corrupt them for the win. And in that way, being able to do that as opposed to just bringing your creature right back in and bigger, I think you're getting a little bit better value out of your mana. Not to mention, if you're doing really well and your creatures aren't going anywhere, you can always cycle it away. That's the one that I tend to prefer in that instance. I, I agree. I prefer uh, Unearth. So with Unearth, you can do it whenever you want. And with uh, Undying Evil, you have to you have to leave a mana open uh, and enter combat or something. You have to have that mana open when when the moment is available. And even though the the advantage is that you get a bigger creature, uh, the fact that the other one can be played whenever you want and that it can cycle. I think it's, it gives it a, uh, a heads up, I guess, uh, an advantage for me. So, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, the other thing is um, with with cards, especially like Ravenous Rats, um, where it's a 1-1 body, and if you're just swinging with him, they're not too concerned about that in the beginning usually, so they, they tend to let that damage through. With a card like Undying Evil, they would have to kill it, or you would have to use one of, you know, for instance, a tendrils or something, to kill it yourself to, to undying evil it. And it's it's a lot more effective to have something like unearth where they can you can chump block with your ravenous rats, bring it right back away, and not have to put the decision more into your hands as far as to what's going to come back, when it's going to come back, and if you don't use it, just getting rid of the card altogether. And I think at the end of the day, if you have a more aggressive build, uh, you might want Undying Evil because, you know, of the extra power and because your creatures, you're going to be throwing them into combat all the time. And for a more controlling build, like uh, Chris said, you know, with the, with, with the rats, with more discard, uh, Unearth is better. Cool. Um, what about sign, sign in Blood? I think that's an important card. It's in every mono black control deck I've I've seen. Sign in Blood is a card that when I first saw it, when I when I was a beginning player of just Magic in general, I thought, oh, this is this is terrible. You're losing life out of the deal. But the the more I played with it, and the more I understood how it really works, Sign in Blood is is quite frankly one of the best cards in in, in a mono black deck that you can run. It really can't be overstated um, how little two life is for the advantage of two cards. Yeah, and especially with with you know your corrupt effects. Yep. Mm. 
And if you've ever had the opportunity to sign and blood your opponent for the win, um, you truly understand what living the dream is. Yes, yes, I, yeah, I've been there. Um, okay, can we now briefly talk about some of the specialized discard cards, like Distress, Wrench Mind? Not only do you have creatures that have the discard ability when they come into the battlefield, you just have straight-up cards that do that. For instance, uh, Duras the Sorcery, target opponent reveals his or her hand. You choose a non-creature, non-land card from it, that player discards that card. Yeah. Um, added advantage of that is you get to see your opponent's hand when you do that. Yeah, for sure. So what what you're doing what you're doing here is you're picking and choosing uh, the spells that are valuable to them. For instance, if they're an effect build, you're you're pulling out the invigorates or some sort of pump that type of thing right there. But you're really trying to move the game to where you're slowing them down while you're just gaining momentum. Duress does that really well. Um, Distress, because unfortunately we don't have him to Turok online. <laughs> um, so, in addition, in combination with the creatures that do it, you're trying to get your opponent's hand to zero and just make it to where they're top decking. And then if you got chittering rats, all the better because they're just top decking the same card. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would like to ask a question about Wrench Mine specifically, and what you, if you think it's viable in mono black control deck or not. Target player discards two cards from his or her hand unless he or she discards an artifact card. Yes. I picked I picked Distress over it um, because I liked being able to pick. Having having played him to Torak and Paper recently, I'm kind of leaning back towards wrench mine because I do think that it's it's a very viable card. Especially since a lot of this stuff, uh wrench mind or you know even mind rot being another one, you're gonna have you tend to have those in your sideboard to begin with. And then once you realize that you're playing against the kind of build, uh for instance like a, a counter build or a, a infect build, you're bringing those in. Wrench mind is Really valuable, especially if they don't have any artifacts. They're just discarding two cards automatically. So I, I can see the definite appeal behind that. It's one that I'm thinking about making the change to myself. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think Wrench Mind is pretty good against something like Goblins or Stompy. Uh, but it's really bad against, say, Storm or... Uh, I wouldn't say really bad against Storm, but usually Storm decks have a Lotus Petal or a Chromatic Star to discard to it. Yeah, exactly. And so in that case, you, okay, it's bad in comparison to distress, where you wanna yes. you wanna pick and choose what they're they're getting rid of instead of go for or try and go for quantity, and and that's gonna fail against storm because they they usually have a lot of artifacts. Yeah. Okay, so I was gonna say, um, so. Maybe we can talk very briefly about some of the lands that you could put into this deck. Obviously, you want to fill it out with swamps, but uh, one of the options you have are the cycle lands, like Polluted Mire and Barren Moor. So what do you think of those, Chris? I tend to, I, I tend to avoid those. Uh, the reason being is, especially in builds where you're trying to get up to the point where you corrupt or, or tendrils, you know, 
get eight eight mana and try and tendrils a Ulamog's Crusher, that type of thing. I view I, I view the the swamps in this deck is very important. They're they're necessary for one of the main kill conditions. They're necessary for your bigger removal, and I would rather stick with basic lands. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I there there's one card that we didn't mention, uh, and it's I don't think it's in your build, but I have seen it used uh, to great effect, and that's spinning darkness. Yeah. And that one. Uh, drains three life at instant speed from a creature or player, but it costs six mana. Uh, I think it's four colorless and two black, but it has the alternative casting cost of removing three cards from your graveyard. Now, for for builds that use that card, they want to have, um, like, the cycle lands, because then they can start putting stuff in their graveyard. And I find that builds that use that that card tend to avoid having corrupts or, or they have fewer corrupts. So I guess it, it's the different kind of builds, you know, different strategy there. Um, yeah. I believe Brian Kibler, he did uh, some videos with Mono Black Control. He had a build that used that uh, that kind of strategy. It is, it, is, it is a good card. It's another one that I used to run. Um, I had to make some cuts and, and remove some of them, and, and this was one of the ones that made the cuts. This was also um, against certain decks. Uh, for instance, um, post it, it can it can become more of a liability, especially game one before you board them out, where it's not going to do enough damage, whereas a corrupt or a tendrils might. Mm, and that yeah. was one of my main reasons for getting rid of it. But it still is. Yeah, it's a very valid card. Yeah, yeah, and it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. For sure. Okay, so let's move on to uh, playing the deck. So the first question I have for you here is what what would you consider would be like the nuts draw? What's the best hand you can have? <laughs> and also, uh, how would you play it out? Like, how do you play out a good hand if you're goldfishing, for example? If I'm goldfishing, um, what, what I want to see is usually two or three lands. So what I can do is, right off the bat, I can Ravenous Rats on turn two. Um, because, and this is thinking game one. I keep my duresses in my sideboard. Yeah. So I can Ravenous Rats game two. I can Liliana Spectre or Chittering Rats uh, turn three. And then I can put down, start putting down stuff, for instance, at Crypt Rats, and just work on building up uh, enough mana keeping myself alive long enough until I can do a, a fatal corrupt or swing for enough damage. Okay. Yeah, that, so, go ahead. that does sound like fun. <laughs> it's very fun. It's also nice in, in your opening, like for instance in your opening seven, let's say you've got three lands, you've got a um, Ravenous Rats and then a Liliana Spectre, and then something like a an Edict Effect, like a Diabolic Edict or a Guest Verdict, and then a Sign in Blood would just be I should take a photograph of this. It doesn't get more beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Now let's go on to the other side. When what what kind of hands are you are you thinking? Ish, 
I don't know if I want to throw this away or not because those are the worst hands, right? When you when yeah, you don't absolutely. really know what what kind of hands have you thinking about that? Like four lands and and a chittering rat. No, I mean a, a ravenous rat, something like that. Yeah, I might be tempted to run that. It's not ideal, but I think that the thing that instantly makes me think uh, get rid of it if there's nothing else in that hand would be seeing something like an Okiba Gang Shinobi in your opening hand. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only two of them in my deck, but still seeing one and knowing that there's a chance that I can't get to it as soon as possible and it's just going to sit there in my hand is is really tough. Also seeing you know m- multiple copies of Crypt Rats, you know, maybe two Crypt Rats in your opening because you want to be able to space those out properly and and just like a hand without any sort of with with so many uh sorcery and instant um damage or, or kill type spells if you don't see enough of it, if i see for instance none of them in my opening hand i know i should probably ship it away because there's a good chance i can get one with six yeah okay cool okay um so uh, in summary, like, what would you say are the, the strengths and what are the weaknesses of this deck? The strengths of this deck, what it really comes down to is, uh, aside from blue, you, you don't really have a, a way to control what your opponent, you know, permission. This is kind of the next best thing. I'm, I'm playing creatures that are, and spells, that force my opponent to decide, you know, maybe they had the nut draw, and all of a sudden they get hit with a duress or they get hit with a ravenous rat. And it's like, I've got to decide how I'm going to mess up my curve at this point. Mm-hmm. And if you can get your opponent to that state while you're just churning out things the way you want things to go, you can really just kind of take control of the tempo of the board. Also, um, cards like uh, Crypt Rats, one of the few sweepers that we have, um, it's not perfect, but it, it works really well for that. Um, being able to wipe a board if you need to. Uh, being able to deal with uh, Inuwa Monk's Crusher with a Corrupt or a Tendrils if it came to that. There's there's a lot of ways around really interesting board states that you couldn't necessarily get with other decks. As far as the disadvantages, um, using life as a resource can come back to bite you in the butt if you're not <laughs> careful. Yeah. Um, and some of the stuff, like for instance, corrupt and tendrils, and even crypt rats. While they're while they're great, useful cards, you need to have the mana available for them. So you're running a little more. You, you tend to run a little more land than what you would see in most popper builds. And yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, do you think the deck is fast enough? Uh, do you ever feel that it's it's a little slow? I do feel it's slow sometimes. Okay. Uh, especially when you're going up against something like Stompy or Storm, Storm can be difficult at times too. But really, what you've got what you've got to do is stay the course and just try and develop your board as much as possible. It's a deck where you're not going to win turn two or turn three. You're going to win turn five or turn six. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the popper format, that can sometimes be a turn or two too slow. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I think we're ready to move on to the matchups. Let's start with Cloudpost. So how, how's this matchup for you? This matchup for me, um, 
Man, I would say it seems like it's pretty 50-50. In, in a lot of cases, I, I'm trying to do one of the things that uh, Mono Black doesn't really have strength in, and that is race him. Mm-hmm. Because I need to get to my mana before he gets to his. And it, it usually comes down to me just trying to... This is, this is where the creatures are, are doing a lot of the work as far as swinging in, trying to do incremental damage. To, to get to the point where I can corrupt him for the win. Um, and also, yeah, this one, this one, this one can go either way pretty easily. Yeah. So as far as, as far as sideboarding, uh, this is where I'm bringing in, going to bring in all sorts of duress slash distress type effects. I have mm-hmm. try and search out um, like the, the uh, flame jabs, things like that. Anything that they can use to really uh, kill my creatures, counter spells, those types of things. I need my stuff to go through because he's producing so much mana that that's not an issue for the opponent. Okay, I, I actually, I'm actually very much afraid of this this matchup. I um, I, I feel that the the cloud post has a little bit of an edge, yeah, because of certain cards like, for example, deep analysis. That one's really bad against uh, mono black control because it it neuters your your own discard right from your creatures. It it, yeah. it lets them use the flashback on it to draw two extra cards uh, for very little mana. Um, what do you think of using um, land destruction? Because black actually has access to three different cards that destroy a land for three mana. Land destruction, I, I can see using that as a way to slow them down. Um, the biggest problem that you're going to run into is uh, the posts, because those posts, um, for instance, the, the life that they gain from having the post into play when another one enters play, yeah. um, that happens when it enters the battlefield. And I can, I can try killing a post in response to that. I can try keeping them off their land as long as possible. But the more land destruction I run, the less uh, stuff I'm doing to advance my board state myself. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that kind of what is what ends up being my undoing when I face a post deck. Oh, okay. So one, one, one uh, interesting point about this that I've heard uh, from an expert, I just can't remember who said it, is that you never want to do both land destruction and discard because they're going in opposite directions, right? Mm-hmm. With land disruption, disruption, you're 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 stopping them from playing their cards. So if if you have a mix of land destruction and discard, uh, you're you're going half and half, and that that won't work. You want to focus on one or the other. Uh, so I think what you're saying is you 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 rather focus on developing your board and discarding, making them discard. Yeah, I think that while <clears throat> while Mono Black Control does have some land uh, destruction and, and things like that, it's not it's not its forte the way card discard and and hand disruption is. That's kind of Black's forte. So I would I would stick to what its strengths are a little more, and and just kind of run with that way over it. Okay. Uh, the other thing I'm afraid of, of from this deck is that their counter spells effectively counter both parts of of your creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if their removal can get rid of their creature of your creature, but you made them discard a card, 
right? Yeah. But the counter spell will stop both the creature from coming in and from the discard effect. So to me, that's like the biggest. Uh, that's usually what I want. What I want to be getting with a duress. Don't know about you. Yeah, I agree. It's ultimately the biggest problem as a as a black player facing blue is blue has better permission. Yeah. So we we just need to find ways around it. Like you said, make them waste. Try and waste counter spells and. Because that's the important that that is an important way you can beat them, if you're if you're diligent is if you can get them to use up their counter spells on stuff and not have them available when they corrupt, when you corrupt you can you can sneak out a win that way, but if they've got something out of the, the numerous types of counter spells they have, and they've got one just waiting for your corrupt, you're it's pretty impenetrable. Yeah, and I will mention um, there are certain builds of Cloud Post where I think land destruction is a better strategy because if they have a lo- if they have you know deep analysis and other flashback cards like uh, the the four mana one that that gets you any instant oh mystical teachings mystical teachings if they have plenty of mystical teachings if they have deep analysis if they have uh, maybe the the I think firebolt that 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 can deal damage and then it's got flashback um, then you're you're not really gaining that much from the discard and in that case, those those cards are expensive. In those cases, uh, the land destruction can be a little bit more beneficial. So I guess it depends on on the kind of deck you're facing, uh, which you you never really know what you're going to face. But if you see the meta game uh, moving towards those kinds of builds, I think uh, a land destruction sideboard would be a little more efficient. I'd also like to add something here, uh, just on a general note on sideboard, and that is that if you find a card that is extremely good against one matchup but it's not good against any other matchup, you might have to remove that for a card that is above average in several matchups. So, because Sideboard has 15 cards, and in a uh, meta as diverse as the popular one right now, you need to be able to handle a lot of decks. Yes. So you need to get find cards that are as diverse in the sideboard as possible. And for example, land destruction spells are also very good against all forms of combo decks. So it's all good against post and combo, which is something to consider. Yeah. Now here's a here's a question I have. If you're running, say for instance, you are running some land destruction against a post deck, um, do you go after the posts? Do you go after the swamp? The, excuse me, the mountains? Do you go after the islands? Because while it's while it's a pain in the butt that they can gain so much life off of those posts, if they're using one forest, geez, one mountain to just wreak havoc against you with their um, with their burn spells, that might be the one you want to blow up instead. Uh, I'm usually not afraid of their mountains uh, because of what I mentioned. Where once you play your creature, you've already had the the mm-hmm. effect, right? Mm-hmm. So. I'll probably go for their cloud posts first because most of their spells are are powerful but expensive. Yeah. And I'll I'll try and save land destruction for those. But sometimes if I see they're not getting their their islands, I might go for an island because they they also have like for example capsize requires yeah. you know, double blue and, and they have sometimes they run counter spell um, so yeah, my my first choice would be to take the cloud posts. Sometimes even the glimmering posts, just to stop future cloud posts or or glimmer glimmering posts uh, from from being better. 
so yeah, that's that's how I'd go about it. All right, cool. All right, um, let's move on to uh, one of uh, a fan favorite. Well, no, uh, Blue Delver. So mm-hmm. when I say Blue Delver, I'm referring to the the aggro Delver, the one with lots of creatures and some tempo and a little bit of counter spells. Uh, we'll talk about mono blue control afterwards. Blue Delver, um, I don't like this matchup. <laughs> um, between the fact that um, their creatures, for instance, Delver of Secrets, they're faster, they're more aggressive, um, the, all their fairies and things like that are all in the air. Mm-hmm. It's really tough to to get around it. And then when they have the counter backup, once they develop their board, which, which happens really quickly, and then they can shut down anything you do, it, it, it's pretty much bad news. Yeah. Yeah, and, and once again, uh, counter spells uh, beat creatures with discard, right? Because yeah. they, they, they do affect both parts of the card. And then they can get those in. Um, so, do you have any suggestions for sideboarding against that? Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sideboard in again um, any sort of discard like duress and distress that that I have. I'm also going to this is going to be a pretty big sideboard shift. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in my serrated arrows to kill you know to kill any of their littler flyer guys, mm-hmm. and really just. I mean, between that, you're going to have to kill their creatures, and you're going to have to try and draw out all of their counter spells again. Save, save for instance, a corruptor, tendrils, or any sort of big artillery that you have to bring back. You're just going to have to be really cautious as to when you play it, and always keep in mind how much mana they have on tap. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you 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 really want to get that serrated arrows in there, yeah. and you know, would you call it bait their counter spells with something else? Yeah. yeah, the serrated arrows can give you a big, big advantage against those fairies. Okay, um, all right. Let's move on to mono blue control. So this is the the build that just has maybe a delver and some spire golems and a lot of counter spells, a lot of card draw. How do you feel that matchup is? Uh, pretty bad as well, <laughs> to be quite frank. Um, Spire Golem is one of those cards where that's one of the reasons why I, I decided against Spinning Darkness in my build. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just... It, it's it's another one of the same type of things. You're just going to want to bait out their counter spells, try and take choice cards out of their hand, and just try and stay alive for long enough. But ultimately what you start running into is they're going to end up with five or six cards in their hand every turn. And there's always a good chance that one of them is some sort of counter. So yeah. you just really need you just really need to bait them out, and sometimes you just have to go for it. If they've got two, and you don't know whether they're you know maybe they're faking it, you just have to sometimes go for it and see what happens. And and this is another deck that tends to use deep analysis uh, to basically destroy your plan to make them discard cards. And I, I think you have to be kind of the aggressive deck here, right? You want to get yeah. all your creatures in and start attacking as quickly as possible. Do you still keep your corrupts? That 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 is still one of your, your win conditions? Yeah, I have a hard time... <sighs> I, you know, maybe maybe it's a, a detriment of my own, but I have a hard time letting go of corrupt. Okay. Um, 
just because just because of the power of it. Um, I feel like, especially in a mono blue deck, they're going to have the counters anyway. So it's just a matter of trying to force them to maybe make a mistake and tap one mana too many. Try and, trying to use their counter spells on stuff that's less important to you winning the game. Okay. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, there's been a number of times where I've duressed someone and they've countered it, and it's like, well, I was going to pull the counter anyway. So in some ways, it kind of still did its job. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to use it. duress. Yeah, especially if you're doing it early enough. And then, you know, duress and, and distress, inherently, they're, they usually seem like they're not as good later on in the game because there's less cards in the opponent's hand, usually, things like that. But if you can keep those duresses and distresses coming at some sort of regular basis, you can still try and draw out counters and that type of thing. Yeah, and, and, and that makes that, that's, that's a great strategy against this deck, right? Because So duress is only going to cost you one mana. And let's say they have four mana open or, or five, you can basically force them to use one of their counters, and then that might give you the space you need to play your your, your corrupt or, or or your creature that's going to make them discard another card, uh, just by forcing them to counter your duress or your distress. Yeah. But you're you're completely right about <clears throat> having to be the aggressor. You know, sometimes when you're playing a deck like that, but and you've got a deck like Mono Black Control, you just have to try and overwhelm them and overwhelm the package of counters that they have available to them when you're doing it. Uh, I didn't play the, the monoblock control like, much, but I think that the monoblock control was pretty favorite. I, I very rarely lost. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I only lost when I didn't draw my counter spells and he drew multiple corrupts, pretty much. <laughs> That's what happened. So it was, I felt like... Monolith control is very favorite, but the same small sample. I could just been lucky. Okay. What about you, Dime? Uh, in my experience, I feel like the games are always pretty grindy. In, in other words, they tend to go a little long. In my experience, and I think that's because Mono Blue Control plays about twelve guys total, if that, and uh, that's less than the total removal spells alone that <laughs> Mono Black usually plays. So they can remove threats pretty easily. For blue to win, you need to have, you know, a flip Delver or a Spire Golem, some combination of those in the air attacking. And it takes a while to be able to stabilize and, and be able to protect one or two threats like that. I think some of the advantages is that Mono Blue Control usually plays Curse of Chains as a removal spell in addition to Serrated Arrows. And those can be pretty effective. Um, Particularly against Mono Black with Curse of Chains, their Unearths and their uh, Ninjas and stuff doesn't doesn't get any value. They can't remove the Curse of Chains typically. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty good. Um, I didn't play the matchup a whole lot to have a lot of uh, you know evidence, but I remember enjoying the Curse of the Bloody Tome sideboard plan on the Mono Blue side. I don't know how popular that is nowadays, but that is one dynamic of the matchup that could be a factor in games two and three is that blue goes on the mill plan and, and they stay really defensive and they just try and protect their life total um, for, for the duration of the game. Yeah, yeah I, I also uh, consider just removing all my creatures and going all in on that, on that plan. And that 
that makes uh, the mono blue control have a lot of dead cards because if you if if you only have eight cards, eight creatures, you can get rid of them all. And then they have like you know sixteen dead cards in their hand. Uh, it like the the mono black control. So so yeah, I agree that uh, uh, mono blue control has a an edge there. What's next? Okay, love, you're in for a treat. It is time for Grix's storm. Hey. So, Chris, how do you like this this uh, this matchup? I don't. <laughs> we mentioned earlier one of Mono Black Control's main disadvantages is that it's one of the slower decks in the metagame. Mm-hmm. And this is proof as to what happens if you're one of the slower decks in the metagame. Um, with, with Storm being able to go off as fast as it can... It, it, it's only, it almost feels like it doesn't matter what's in your hand sometimes. It's not going to yeah. do any good. You know, again, I would be boarding in as much discard as possible and just to try and pull out choice bits to try and slow them down. But there's, it seems like there's always the concern that it doesn't matter what I do. There's enough ways for them to go off that it's not going to matter. Mm, it's, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, a bit, not much, but this... This usually counts for all the combo decks, but the fact is that um, I have faced not. It happens that I face like turn one duress, turn two distress, turn three, turn three chittering rats, and I still win. Wow, and really? Yeah, and that's pretty much the ideal situation for one black control. Yeah, and or just one turn one duress, turn two duress duress, and I still win. Uh, that's you, it. Doesn't happen always, uh, and the only way mono black control can win is by making me discard a lot of cards and and applying pressure. So if they just um, make me discard discard cards and not applying any pressure, I'll just sit there and draw new ones until I have a full grip again. So you need to apply pressure and make me discard cards. So I have to go off with as few cards as possible, which then makes it a higher probability for me to fizzle. That's pretty much what you have to do. Yeah, I I have it set as as a good matchup actually, because uh, in my experience, mono black control is one of the few decks that that can disrupt uh, more easily uh, a Grixis, well, a storm deck. Um, I, I would say it's, it's very slightly favored to the Grixis storm, maybe fifty five to sixty percent. Really. Hmm. Yeah. I'll have to change my matchup table. And here's, or do, you, do you agree, Chris? Or I, I agree. I agree that it's uh, that storm is favored um, because I can, like I said before, I can side in my duresses and my distresses. I can get rid of some of my uh, specific targeted uh, kill spells, but I still have to draw all that stuff. And I still, I, I know that because, well, in the first place, those things aren't going to happen game one. In game one, I'm probably just going to get tromped. You know, no questions asked, which means I'm already to the wall for game two. So I'm going to have to try and duress and distress. I still have to draw them. I, I need cards like Liliana the Spectre and Chittering Rats and Ravenous Rats. I need them as fast as possible. And I'm still, you're basically back against the wall just trying to do whatever you can. And a lot of times it just doesn't happen. Mm. Well, Okay, I mean, so I see that 
disruption, like hand disruption, is one of the best ways to to deal with the storm decks. And on top of that, you've got echoing decay, which is another tool to deal with goblins. Although they, of course, have uh, ways to counter that. Uh, among them, dispel or lava dart stuff like that. Um, but but yeah, I, I've I've always felt that that mono black control is one of the the better better matchups against storm. I wanted to ask you, Chris. By the way, uh, since there are uh, a lot of options, well, which do you prefer to run? Echoing Decay, Shrivel, or Whale of the Nin? I prefer Echoing Decay. You prefer Echoing Decay because it's instant. Yes. All right, yeah, because I, I mean, I play, as you probably know, mostly Blue Red Storm previously, and I run Lava Darts main deck and more in the sideboard against the Echoing spells. So I started to see more Shrivel uh, uh, showing up. And I'll say Shrivel is a black and a colorless. It's a sorcery, and it gives all creatures minus one, minus one, which means it does not get countered by Lava Dart as Echoing Decay does, but Echoing Decay gives minus two, minus two, so it can be good in other areas, and it's instant. So that's actually pretty relevant as well, because Shrivel only works if the player storms off and doesn't have the um, Wishwacker Goblin. Yeah. Uh, Wh- Whale of the Nim is actually an instant, and that one deals one damage to all creatures. Yeah, but that costs three. Cost three. Yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> and by turn three against the storm deck, stuff's starting to happen. <laughs> yeah. Properly. The, other, the one advantage that I will say, if you're talking about, for instance, the Goblin Storm deck, is I've Crypt Rats the world before with, with that when they've had 50 or 60 Goblins into play, and um, that can be effective. But <clears throat> there's a lot of times when I beat a Storm player with this deck where I, if I'm not getting super lucky with my draws or, or my proper sideboarding, um, I wonder if maybe I'm not just facing, I'm facing down someone who has been unlucky with their draws or they're not, you know, the most experienced Storm player. Mm. Both of that happens regularly. How about land destruction against against Storm? Well, when I play Greek Storm, I curse loudly. Uh, because the <laughs> lands, you, you play 12, at least I play 12, and losing one is a big deal, because you need three untapped before you go off. If you want a good guarantee of going off, three untapped lands and seven spells usually means you win. But if you have to go off from one or two lands, it's a lot more uncomfortable. So I think land destruction with hand discard is the best way to fight the Grixis Storm deck, but that means you have to devote a lot of your sideboard cards, so <laughs> I don't think it's viable to play both. Yeah. And I, I'm, it's, it's, like I said previously about sideboarding, it's a trade-off. Because if you play land destruction, it's going to be good against uh, blue red post and storm decks, at least the Grixis one. But if you have uh, hand disruption, that's better against mono blue control, and also against storms. So you have to uh, it, like discard is worse against combo decks than land destruction is, but. Uh, the duress and distress and discard cards are better against more decks in general than the land destruction is, so you might be better off playing the uh, discard than the land destruction. Yeah, I think one of the most important things, uh, one of your tools when you're playing a storm deck, and I think it's regardless of any deck you're playing, but is just making sure you let them let them finish it out because there's a lot they have to do to make it go right, and 
you know, just don't don't give up. Make them kill you. I, I think is what's really important when you're facing a storm deck. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think it, the, the same goes for blue red storm as for Grixis storm in this case. I don't think there are really any differences for this particular matchup. Uh, sub, subtle, subtle difference. I mean, there is a blue red storm deck that plays only basic lands, and land destruction is horrible against that deck for obvious reasons. But other than that, yeah, no. Okay, so let's move on to Goblins. Um, how do you find that matchup, Chris? Goblins matchup <clears throat> is is a little more doable, uh, in my in my opinion, um, because I do have I do have things like Crypt Rats, I do have um, Edict effects, I do have kill spells, and um, I have duress and distress effects where I can pull out uh, burn spells, that type of thing. So when I'm when I'm facing this one, I, I tend to just just know that they're quicker than me, and what I really need to do is try and find as many ways as possible as, to slow them down and and just grind them out. So I guess you wanna you wanna use your creatures to block them. Yeah, uh, always always trade. Um, do, do you find edict effects useful in this in this matchup? Um, if I earlier the better. Okay. If it's if it's to the point where there's just one or one or two or even three creatures on the board, um, I ha- I have no problem using them. Um, usually, usually that's because an edict effect is um, especially once you start looking at snuff out or. Um, stuff out being the main one, basically, mm-hmm. or tendrils of corruption, that it's doing something to them and wrecking one part of their board. Now, the problem that I run into is that a lot of times they'll generate enough tokens yeah. that is kind of a is kind of a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But really, what I'm trying to do is protect my crypt rats through duress and and distress and, and things of that nature uh, until I can crypt rat and regain control of the board. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so what? What's your sideboard plan here? I'm gonna take out. Um, let me see. I'm probably gonna take out a, a few edicts just because one or two of them isn't bad, but having a full grip of them is, is kind of not the best course of action. Serrated arrows. Serrated arrows is a tough call, but I know that I'm definitely going to put in. Duress, distress, things like that, and any other sort of cheap removal that I may have, just to try and keep them off their game as long as possible. So, uh, <clears throat> taking into account that they usually have way more creatures than spells, is duress a good idea here? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a it's kind of a toss up. If I see that they're game one, they're just doing a, a lot of straight up goblins. Um, I'm probably not going to bring them in. If if I see that they're doing a mix of goblins and some type of burn to maybe hit me for a few here and there to keep my board clear, I might consider it a little more. Okay, we'll move on to infect. I I like this matchup. Good, good. Yeah, I really do. I think that infect more so than goblins is relying on it trying to kill you before turn three or turn four. And if I can weather out that storm, then I'm in good shape. And th- this is another instance of, you know, my creatures like my rats and my Liliana Spectre 
throwing them onto the battlefield, using their enter the battlefield ability, and then right away letting them be blockers. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep gaining mana, um, using cards like Sign and Blood and Fire X and Ranger to keep drawing cards just to try and place one land down a turn. And I'm going to just weather out, weather out the, the storm that they've got coming my way until I can get to the point where I can start hitting back. And um, board, in, board in my uh, duress effects, pull out the choice pump spells that they have, uh, keep tabs on where their hand is and what they're developing. Because, uh, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I've seen way too many games where an infect player is basically, I've got a glistener elf and a bunch of pump and I'm going to run with it. And if you can block that elf and take away their pump um, and just turn the tables on them, it's great. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess edicts are pretty important here, right? Because of their... Yeah, very important. Their protection Um, spells. Yeah. Especially Apostle's Blessing. Edict is a great way to uh, laugh in the face of an Apostle's Blessing. What's the name of that other one that uh, it gives them hexproof and plus four plus four if you kick it? Oh, uh, vines of vastwood. Vines of vastwood. That's that's the one I most hate. Yeah, that's a good one. It's also great when they'll use um, invigorate to give you a little more life, which is just a little more uh, stuff to use. More resources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay. so this is a pretty this is a pretty good matchup. Kind of like um, Storm, the, the important thing, I know it was a big deal when Infect first started ravaging the dailies, but it's important to not panic and just and just play like you know how to play and just work around it because it's it relies so much on the shock and awe factor. If you can weather those first few turns, you're in good yeah. shape. Okay, so how about Stompy? I believe this must be a very similar matchup, right? Yeah, it's it really even, is. It's probably better because it's slower. Yes, exactly. And um, the other nice advantage of Stompy, um, when you're, when a lot of the creatures um, uh, that you have at your disposal, Ravnus Rats being two, uh, Spectre being three, uh, Crypt Rats being three, Children Rats being three, you can do a pretty good job of putting effective blockers out to make sure that they're not getting through with that damage. What I would probably sideboard out would be uh, like Warm Pilfers or any guys that you have that are on the higher end of the curve so you can stay within their their quick curve of doing stuff. Okay. Um, also, again, you can, you can throw in... You know, I might not do every single uh, duress-type ability I have. I might throw in some to, to make room... To, to fill in the room that was left after, like, I took out Warren Pilfers and, and Okipa Gang Shinobi, maybe, to just kind of make sure I'm pulling out um, Rancors and, and uh, Groundswells, Vines of Astwood, things like that, just to kind of keep them off their game. Because they're relying on turning everything sideways and making it huge as quick as possible. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to Affinity. How do you feel about that one? Affinity, um, I think that's another one where when we were talking about land destruction, it might be of some benefit in the sideboard there. But the advantage the advantage that I have over Affinity is that they have a really shaky mana base. So what I'm going to be trying to do here is taking advantage of the fact that they can have a slow start. Um keeping my kill spells available, um, 
especially if I can keep their board relatively clean and I can use an edict effect when they have an Atog in play, it doesn't matter how big they make him. And if I... Let's see, I lost my train of thought. Really, it's just going to be the same thing. Um, have them discard cards. Um, hopefully make their, their shaky mana base that they have to deal with a little bit harder to deal with. Yeah. Um, keep the kill spells in to get rid of big creatures. This is where it's nice to have um, tendrils and, and snuff out and kind of move away from spinning darkness again because you can still get rid of a mirror enforcer. Yeah, for sure. I'm not I'm not too afraid of it. Okay. Yeah, from what I've heard it's a really good matchup. And I think one of the big factors is say you're playing goblins or fairies or you're playing Stompy or something and your opponent's affinity and they play a four four, that changes the whole dynamic of the game. You you're thinking, how am I gonna get rid of this? Am I going to attack into it and pump my guy? Am I going to attack into it and then have to bolt it? But if you're mono black, you're like, oh, I'm just going to kill that. <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. really matter. So uh, from what I've heard, Affinity has a really hard time with mono black. Yeah, yeah, I remember that from Special Kyle. Okay, so let's move on to Dime's favorite, White Weenie. Let's, uh, let's hear your, your point of view <laughs> first, uh, Chris. White Weenie, um, White Weenie scares me. Probably, probably the most, one one of the most out of all this stuff. Um, the reason being is because they have the advantage of monocolor, just like I do. So there's, there's one more thing that I don't have over them. Uh, the other advantage is that they've got plenty of ways to gain life. They've got plenty of ways to throw uh, creatures in front of me. They've got plenty of sideboard options to make black just have a terrible time, like the cops and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, Guardian of the Guild Pact. Yes. So, Edict is nice against Guardian of the Guild Pact, it really is, um, but that's just, that's just one card. And it's, with, the problem that I run into with White Weenie is if I try and Go at it one way. It's got more. It's got side routes that it takes to get through to me. If I go, okay, well, I'll just keep these edicts in uh, to go after Guardian of the Guild Pact. Then they're just uh, going after me with protection. If I'm trying to go quicker, they're they're doing a lot faster things than I can do. If they're if I'm using corrupts and, and tendrils, they've got life gain. So it's really, there's a real give and take to this kind of matchup. It's a lot of fun to play, but I think that I'm a little bit of an underdog in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it would seem that, that you would have an advantage at first because of all the yeah. removal and they're a creature-based deck, but they have so many ways around uh, the discard and they have the protection, yeah. And yes, uh, Circle of Protection is... a. Uh, is is if I see a circle of protection, I'm on no black. I, I just want to rage quit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a one sideboard tech that works against uh, circle of protection black. Well, there, there's a couple. There's a there's a golem from from the same cycle that spire golem and you know, all those uh, affinity golems are uh, that has uh, affinity for swamps. 
Um, Dross Gollum. Dross Gollum, yeah. And that one has, uh, what does it have? Does it have fear? Yeah. Yeah. So that one can work uh, against White Weenie, but unfortunately, uh, their their own Gollum can block it, and it's <laughs> it's pretty good at blocking it. Um, yeah, their, their Gollum is, is Dross Gollum is kind of underwhelming. I yeah. mean, the fear it, it makes sense, but ultimately he's a three-two. He doesn't get around all their vigilance creatures. He's just kind of um, unimpressive as far as the other Gollums that that get utilized in the format. Yeah. And the other card I was thinking of is called Brush with Death. And this is a, it's a sorcery that has buyback and it costs uh, two colorless and a black mana. And the opposing player loses two life and you gain two life. And the buyback costs two and, and black, black, two black, black. Uh, and that gets around Circle of Protection and, and kind of keeps you alive. But for that to work, you have to go on a, kind of an attrition strategy where you're just destroying all their creatures and, and, and just kind of trying to, kind of trying to stay alive so that your, your, your card there does the work. And it's a very long-term plan, very grindy plan and mm-hmm. it doesn't always work. So well, yeah. It, it also costs, um, with the buyback ability, it's seven, seven mana. Yeah. Well, and it, by it, the time you're trying to do that, they've got, a squadron hawk and they've looked for the rest of their squadron hawks. They're swinging with that. They're swinging with their guardian of the guild pack. It's, it's just, it's, it, it is very hard, but you do, you do have the tools, right? Like you, you yeah. can combat their squadron hawk with echoing decay. You can combat the, the guild pack, the guardian of the guild pack with edict effects, and you can kill all their other stuff with, with your removal and try and get them to drop down in the number of cards they have with your own creature cards. Uh, and, and if you play your, your instance, your removal, instant speed removal, right, you can win some, some of the combat. So it's, it's difficult, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it is a winnable match, but there's definitely an edge on, for, for White Weenie, I would say. Well, I think this is actually a very dynamic matchup. The more I think about it and just listening to you guys talk, there are so many factors that can affect um, who's going to end up on the winning end of things. I think one of the big factors is kind of the build that each guy is playing, what everyone's running. And right now, uh, there are obviously different versions of Mono Black, but even White Weenie, it's gone into two different directions. And the newer direction is the more oriented around War Falcon, a lower mana curve, uh, smaller guys, but even more of a swarm strategy than it was. And that one I can't really say because I haven't faced a lot of mono black. I think it's actually a better matchup for mono black than the older white weenie that does have the guardians and the razor golems and stuff like that. So uh, the main things I'll just say about the matchup is that there, yeah, there are a ton of factors. I think early on white is going to be in a more aggressive role because it has creatures that can begin to outclass Mono Black. Mono Black sometimes will start out with, you know, playing a rat on turn two or maybe casting Sign and Blood or leaving up removal mana. And the early White Weenie creatures like Loyal Cathar or even just going Airborne with Squadron Hawk or, or like Sky Hunter or something, it allows White to attack, um, you know, in those early turns and kind of develop the board. 
But the, what really starts to turn the game around, I feel, is those effects like tendrils corrupt or spinning darkness, where Mono Black not only removes a creature, but also gets a life buffer and buys themselves some time. And I think White can usually get through one of those effects and, and keep on trucking, but if multi- multiple of those actually resolve, then it becomes a bit of a problem. Uh, also, a thing that lets the older style White Weenie have an advantage is it plays Benevolent Bodyguard, and that can protect against an Echoing Decay or a Tendrils or a Corrupt or something like that. I think that's pretty big. Also, prismatic strands can be helpful against those corrupt effects. Yeah, so there's a lot of factors. Um, crypt rats, another thing. I usually don't play around crypt rats if if I don't see it, uh, if I haven't seen it in a previous game or something. But that can be a huge blowout because then they can just play one and wipe your entire board. Most of the time in these games, uh, you'll get into a top deck situation because black can remove. A lot of creatures. I mean, a lot of creatures. And so, uh, depending on your top decks, it's, sometimes it's even better to draw Squadron Hawk later in the game as opposed to earlier for that exact reason. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of cards that come into play. Out of the sideboard for white, I mean, sometimes it is Cop Black or Rune of Protection Black, but sometimes they'll play Obsidian Acolyte or Order of Leaper. And those are... You know, their their performance kind of varies because they can be removed via edict effects or serrated arrows. So it, there's just so many things that play into it. In my experience, you know, uh, I've had a lot of success against Mono Black running those older type White Weenie builds. But currently, the, the type of deck, White Weenie deck that I've been playing uh, and in my MTGO Academy content, I, I really haven't faced it enough to say. And so... Um, yeah, but it is a matchup that in the past I think has favored White Weenie, but I don't think it's by any means, um, you know, a dog. I don't think Mono Black's a dog at all. I'd, l- I'd like to add one thing that I've noticed from listening to Chris here is that it's very, very important when playing Mono Black, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, to know when you're the beatdown and you're when you're not the beatdown. And this is a concept uh, which is... Slightly complicated, and you should read. Uh, it's a very old article by Mike Flores on StarCityGames.com, but it's a very, very good article to read, uh, and especially if you want to play Mono Black, it seems, because sometimes Mono Black is the aggressor, sometimes they're the control, and you really need to know when you're which to know what you want to do. Like against Mono White, you might not want to race against Mono White, maybe you'd prefer to trade and use your removal spells in a different way if you're the aggressor or if you're the control. I, I agree with that. Yeah, that's sure. that. That's a really good article um, that everyone should read anyway. But yeah. Mono Black uh, is is definitely one of those decks where you you have to know what you're doing. It takes um, a lot of experience to know when you're going to do it, what you're going to do, and and knowing what the other decks in the metagame are going to do. Okay. Let's just do the mirror match. The mirror match. The mirror match is a lot of fun um, because there are quite a few different varieties. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that about a mirror match before. So that's actually pr- pretty cool to hear. Well, it's it's because uh, I mean I'm running. If you look at my deck, I've got six or seven different types of uh, 
removal spells. And I know that the opponent I'm playing could have any number of different types of things. And, you know, how many, how many chittering rats, how many crypt rats, what's, what's going on with this, what's going on, you know, with all that type of stuff. And really the most important thing is if you're running any sort of main, uh, main spells that have, you know, remove target non-black, you want to get those out of there. <laughs> and a lot of times what it just comes down to is being able to curve out properly, making sure that you're using your creatures and your effects to, to, to the, to the best of your ability. I mean, if you're duressing and you're distressing, you need to know what what your opponent's trying to do so that you make the right decision and just being on the lookout, making sure that you're not using too much of your life for when a corrupt or something like that comes. I, I actually find that corrupt and tendrils of corruption are key cards in this matchup. Yes. And the person who has the most of those and can play them wins. It's an arms race. This is, this really is an arms race type yeah. of match. You're trying to make sure you hit your mana drops. You're making sure that you're, just trying to keep your opponent from doing what it is you're trying to do. And I always, I always find that infinitely fascinating when I, when I have a matchup. So obviously you take out your snuff outs and, and all that. What yeah. would you bring in? Uh, I would for sure bring in uh, any sort of duress or distress effects that I have in the sideboard. Okay. Um, the certain spells like uh, corrupts and tendrils are very important because of the life swing that you can get from them to keep you alive and corrupt that you can do it to the opposing player. Um, edict effects are great because you're just getting rid of some other stuff. And what, what I would avoid cutting, cutting a few out of is any sort of kind of not, not super perfect type of, uh, kill spells simply because I need to be making sure that I'm disrupting the hand. I'm swinging as much as possible, trying to gain, trying to keep my life below my opponent is really important. Excuse me. Above my opponent is okay. very important. Making sure that I'm getting through with what I can as much as possible. I think that if I were facing another mono black player, it would behoove me to be the aggressive one. I've never played the mirror match. So <laughs> Oh, it's a lot of fun. It's just like it's just it's basically like watching espionage movies. <laughs> no one knows what's going on. Everyone knows what the other person has, but doesn't know when they're going to use it. And cards cards are never staying in the hand for very long. It's a lot of fun. All right, so I'm just going to do a quick financial analysis for Mono Black Control. Um, there, this is actually one of the cheaper one of the cheaper decks. Uh, that you can you can play on a popper uh, because you can actually make a build of mono black control that doesn't have any of the expensive cards. What, what are the expensive cards? Those would be Crypt Rats, which is around three point six ticks. Uh, you've got Unearth at close to two ticks. You've got Spinning Darkness, also close to two ticks. Snuff Out, also close to two ticks. And Chittering Rats, which used to be bulk, but now is hovering around one tick. So those are the cards that, that can go in a core build. But except for Chittering Rats, uh, you can probably do without all of the others. You, you can make a, a competitive build that just uh, uses other stuff. Um, and like in, in the sideboard, you might find, find Unmake, 
which is close to one ticks. Uh, you've got Choking Sands, which has climbed up to almost two ticks recently. You've got Innocent Blood, which is around one ticks. Diabolic Edict, which is about 1.5. And good old Serrated Arrows, which has uh, started to climb up again and is uh, above six ticks these days. Um, so, like, obviously the, the price is going to vary because you have all these cards that you could or, or might not put in. So you can have a build that's from as low as uh, six to eight ticks, and you or you can stuff it with all these expensive cards and have a build that costs up to 30 ticks, probably. Um, so in general, uh, because of the fact that you can build it for cheap, this is a good starting point for anyone getting into Popper. Uh, that's all we have time for today. I think it's been a pretty pretty long episode. Um, so, uh, Dime, you want to talk about uh, how they can reach you? Sure. So, everybody, you guys can reach me on YouTube, youtube.com slash dimecollectorsc. You can also follow me on Twitter, at dimecollectorsc. On Magic the Gathering Online, my ID is Bamboo Rush. And then you can check out my articles on mtgoacademy.com. And the title of the articles is Dime a Dozen. My name is Jason Moore on there. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, and see you guys next time. All right. And you, Loaf, uh, can, can people reach you and find you in, over the interweb? Yeah, uh, mostly you can find me on MTGO, on uh, Grassbus, and I'm going to try to be streaming regularly at least in October, at the very latest, uh, on twitch.tv slash Grassbus. I have a Twitter account, but I don't tweet at all. It's also gr- at Grassbus, but I still don't have to add me because I pretty much don't tweet. So it's either they're on Twitch or on MTGO. Okay. And you can find uh, you can find me on MTGO as Gabo Cheeto. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gabo Cheeto. And also, uh, you can email uh, us at popperscage at gmail.com. Or you can uh, look at our blog, popperscage.blogspot.ca. Um, you can find uh, all the primers. You can find the primer for this uh, for, uh, mono black control you can find prices links to all the proper proper information and you can leave us a comment uh, in that blog uh, and you can also follow us on twitter at popper's cage where i'm going to be posting all the updates uh, that i can find related to the popper magic world so um thank you very much chris for uh giving us this primer on mono black control and joining us here well guys it was great to be on and thanks for listening thanks Uh, So, uh, thank you, uh, Dime, and thank you, Loaf. Hey, thanks. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time. Peace.